0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of So How'd You Get Here? I'm one of your co-hosts, Angelo. And I'm Tony. Hey, welcome to the show today. Coming at you f- uh, from uh, Hollywood, California today, and we've got longtime legend. Uh, I got I got a lot of credits we got to get through, we, so... Let's um, do it. Um, you, you okay to start off with some of them?
1: Um, Academy Award winner, one, Golden Globe Golden winner, Grammy nominated, uh, what else we got? Emmy Award winning, producer, director... Running out of fingers. That's, yeah, right. <laughs> Lily Finney Zanuck, thank you for coming to the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Hey, girl. How are you doing today? Thank you for coming I'm on our show. I'm doing
2: very well. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Appreciate so, you. Let's start off with um, maybe a couple of your titles, and we want to back up and talk about if this is where you are now, we want to go all the way back to yeah. how you started. Like, okay.
2: Like, first... So do you want me to go backward? Yeah. Up to you. Go backwards. Okay, so... Uh... The last thing I did was the Grammy-nominated documentary on Eric Clapton, Life in 12 Bars. You can still watch it on show. Yeah, family. amazing. <laughs> and uh, before that, I did HBO series Bessie, about Bessie Smith's story, Queen Latifah.
1: Which won an Emmy for you, correct? Yes. Yes.
2: Um, I won the Academy—I'm the second woman to ever win an Academy Award for Best Picture.
1: Amazing. Which would be for Driving, driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. Correct.
2: Um which had twelve nominations.
1: Wow! Dang.
2: Yeah, and I produced uh, Cocoon, which was my first feature.
0: Which is probably the first movie I ever watched of your work. I was five, <laughs> six years old. So I'm kind of getting to meet my, uh, you know, yeah. hero of mine I mean, that, I did in, a that I didn't. You're yeah, kind of was a legend to us. Yeah, kind of a legend to us. You
2: know. So, well, let me tell you how I got here. Yeah. Um, I lived in Washington D.C. Okay. I was um, twenty-two years old, and I thought I, I worked at the World Bank, and I thought, you know what, I can see my future, and I didn't like that. I I, I don't need the safety of, right. of knowing what's next. Yeah. I don't mind the it was unknown. too monotonous. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing at the World Bank, you have to go back to school get another degree to get a promotion, so it's I not, see. it's a very kind of academic situation yeah. in a lot of ways. So. Um, so I summer vacation. and I went to London because I had spent a lot of time in Europe as a child. My father was military. Okay. So I went to London, and my girlfriend came to LA. We both got back to Washington, and she said, "I'm moving. I, I'm I'm moving. I'm going
1: She loved it that much. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I I'm leaving in September, and I, and I started, I said, "Oh really?" I said, "Well, I'm not moving to London. I mean, I swear I live now." Right. But at that age, I wasn't. There's no Carnaby Street, you yeah, know, it's yeah. a little past that. So she would tell me, she was talking about what a good time she had and how she loved everybody here and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, maybe I'll move to LA too. So I booked a trip to co- come out and see if I liked it.
0: Mm-hmm. And what year would this be roughly?
2: Um, this would be 77, okay. 1977. Okay. And, um, and then I thought, oh, don't, don't, you don't have to go out and like it, it's better than here. You know, it's just, it's a change. (laughs) So whatever it is, you're going to like it because it's something different. Yeah. So I, I, um, she got here before I did and got us an apartment and because she didn't find it necessary to see every cave in Tennessee and anything that was like something you could pull over and see. So she got to LA in three days and I took like seven. Um, But I saw everything. Right. And, um. And I got here, and I was I, I I loved it. I was totally broke, so the-
1: Where did you land, Hollywood, the beach, like no, Santa Monica? No, we
2: lived where La Brea dead ends. Okay. Up, you know, and, um, and I loved everything. First of all, I had never seen daylight during the day, because in Washington, I had to be at the World Bank at 8.30, and then by the time I left, it was already dark. Okay. And um, they encourage you to eat at the bank because every building of the bank has a different nationality. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, cafeteria, whatever yeah, you want right. to call it. So, and you, as we all know now with efficiency, you take a shorter lunch when you In the eat. building, yeah. you don't
0: leave, yeah. Yeah. Well, now so, you eat while you're working. Yeah, yeah now much. we. What lunch?
2: Um, so I thought, I don't want to live a life where I never see daylight. I come here. I'm going to work in the sunny morning. I'm getting off, and it's still sunny, and it's sunny in a way that you can still do something after work. Of course, you know, and not feel like it's you know it's night. Yeah. So I I, I really loved it, and um, I was totally broke. I had spent everything coming across country that I had, and I had like three hundred dollars left when I arrived, and I had to give that to my roommate because she'd put the deposit yep. and everything on on the place. So literally the next morning I had to go to an employment agency and um, they sent me uh the first interview I went to that day one was for a documentary filmmaker but he had just shot this whole thing on birds in in um in Vermont and the other was to the carnation company
1: like carnation instant breakfast like what's yeah. car- okay
2: but they were um they had lots of companies like under that umbrella you know they had lumber all kinds of yeah. things so i went there um in a pr capacity because it was a big a big company and 6 months later i met my husband on a blind date i
0: tinder Bumble? No, no, not. We Hinge? didn't have
2: no. We got to see each other first. Yeah. Oh,
0: what? I've read about <laughs> we that We didn't have before. to. Yeah, we that didn't have to look anymore. at a picture.
2: <laughs> we could see how the person moved. Yeah, there are a human a being drink. in front of you. Yeah, that's incredible. But what a novel idea. We were. It was a blind date, so uh, Dick said to uh, our mutual friend. He played tennis with our mutual friend. Anyway. He said, well, what's her name? And and, and our friend said, well, her name is Lily. And he said, oh, I don't want to meet a Lily. I just gave a, a Lily my last alimony check. And, and I, no, I don't want to meet Bad
0: her. Bad taste in the mouth.
2: Yeah. Then the next time they saw each other for tennis, it came up again. And he said, is she an actress? Because I don't want to be with an actress ever again. He said, no, she's not an actress. She doesn't want to be an actress. And I wasn't that eager because I thought, who goes on a blind date? Right. You know, like somebody desperate goes on a blind yeah. date. So we were both kind of hemming and hawing and everything. So then Dick says to our friend Pierre, who's our, actually his best man, uh, he says, Well, I'm going to run a picture Friday, bring her. And Pierre says, She's not somebody I can bring. You're going to have to call an inviter. Later, Dick says to me, "That already sounded like trouble." Yeah, and I thought, "What kind of girls have you been dating?" I mean, you know, like, what somebody else just brings them. So he called me, uh, and I thought he sounded handsome. I sounded, his words, like gravel, Gertie. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I, I, you sounded like an old boozer." <laughs> So he called up so Piet- that's her
1: Instagram handle now, right? Yeah. Oh, loser? yeah so
0: <laughs> oh, or that there's several options. He, here. he
2: called Pierre and he says, "How old is she?" And he said, and he said she's 24, and she's a little petite thing. He says, she sounds awful. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, th- is that
0: the East Coast? Is that the Boston coming out? maybe No, it's, I
2: think it's the fact that it's so it was raspy, yeah, and you don't expect that that voice is attached to me. So
1: what you, yeah what you look like.
2: Yeah, what I look like. Yeah, that wasn't you, the first time I'd heard uniqueness. it. <laughs> but anyway, he grew to love this voice, so yeah, worked out fine. Um, and one of the things that I hadn't liked about being here, I loved the weather, and I loved all the sporty nature of it. I didn't like the guys at all. Because in Washington, who somebody dates is a reflection on them. Right. So... The guys that ask you out want you to be intelligent, and they want you to be able to contribute yeah. in some way to a conversation or a dinner or whatever. This was the first time I'd ever been in an environment where somebody wanted an arm piece. Nah. Yeah. They, yeah. they really didn't care at all about anything, and, and they wanted somebody to listen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they weren't that interesting. <laughs> so I thought, I got I to gotta get out of here for just that yeah. Part of it, it was really, and it's really bad. It still exists. It's the same way. It's the worst place to date. Right. Um. Uh. I. I don't. I didn't like older men or anything like that. And there's a lot of that because, of course, a fifty-year-old can ask a twenty-four-year-old out, but th- that's not the case around the world. Right. Right. Uh. So I. I thought they're old. They're boring. They're. You know. It was not a good. Fit for me and my personality and what I was used to, and unfortunately, I hear now all these years later, it's still the same way, yeah, so, <laughs> so um,
0: for the majority, there are yeah. some great exceptions and some
2: yes good obviously there well, are some but... unicorns like you out there yeah. <laughs> so um
1: Camry, Camry, you're yeah. coming on next you're...
2: sorry, so um we met, Pierre took me down there after Dick had invited me, and and uh, uh, he was short
1: in stature. Yes.
2: Yeah. And I I don't like that just because I'm petite. I like like six three guys. Yeah. And I thought, why does everybody keep thinking I want somebody short? It's, they don't. think I didn't I want ask somebody.
0: to be this short. <laughs> this is what God gave me. Okay. <laughs> so you be, choose your next words yeah. carefully. But
2: and the, and he said. I knew you weren't gonna go upstairs and I thought who has he been dating (laughs) no I'm not gonna go upstairs so um, that's
0: exactly why you your wife material is that you wouldn't go upstairs
2: so we sat at the bar and everybody there there were other people everybody there was either one couple was training for the Ironman decathlon or triathlon thing that was gonna take place in Hawaii that year my husband my future husband ran five miles twice a day he ran it in the morning and then he ran another five miles after work
0: i didn't know that
2: and another person there which was a stuntman friend of his also did like crazy things like run all day or something and i'm sitting there and i'm also like dressed like i'm from washington dc and they're california dress like my husband has on like a satin jacket with a dragon embroidered from japan and you're
0: like power suit ready to like take on the world
2: and i'm thinking i i don't even know where i've just landed so they asked me if i ran and i said i'm from washington dc if somebody has a gun i run but i don't wake up and voluntarily do this
1: yeah if i'm being chased i'll run yeah yeah
2: um and then we went to dinner we watched a movie and uh and my husband didn't stay in the room for the movie. He just, you know, we all sat down, and he started it, you know, talked to the guy in the yeah. booth, and he started it. And then he kind of left, and the phone light was on. And I thought, this is so rude. Um, and then he kind of came in towards the end of the movie, like for almost at credits, maybe a little bit before that. Right. And um, we went to dinner. When we got to dinner, everybody ordered whatever they ordered. My husband ordered the house wine. Now, this was the (laughs) restaurant where Wolfgang Puck started here in America. He started in France, actually, but he's Austrian. I knew, because I went to that restaurant for lunch, not for dinner, but I went to that restaurant, and I knew Wolfgang would not cook with the house wine. So now I'm sitting in there hearing Dick order the house wine, and I'm thinking— what the hell? You know, the, I wasn't ordering the house one when, when I went to lunch with my roommate. Right. And we saved up all week to do this. <laughs> so I, I'm already like, I think I'm with a hillbilly or something. But you know, like, he's, so then the food comes and everybody's tasting each other's food. And I'm thinking, this is not a, a Chinese restaurant. What the hell are they all doing? Because I'm not used to people doing that.
0: Yeah. Tapas style where you, everybody
2: yeah, shares. Yeah, I know. In Washington, you order what you want to eat and you they eat don't it. all go, oh, you got to taste this and the forks are flying and all of that. Yeah, totally and that understand. didn't leave me more impressed. Right. Uh, and so I figured, you know, let's just get the dinner over with right. and that'll be the end of this date. Our friend Pierre says to me, do you mind if Dick drives you home? And I thought, no, not at all, that's fine. On the way home, he told, my home, he told me the most fascinating story about himself it was in 1976 this is now 78 okay. but in 1976 he had won custody of his sons well i had never had a reference for this because half the divorce people i know that were like lucky if the father made a weekend visit right nobody went to court and fought to raise their little kids, these were little, when we got married they were five and six. Mm -hmm. So they were very young when he went to court. And he was telling me why he did it and um, how important it was for him. And all of a sudden I was looking at him through totally different eyes. Mm -hmm. I'd never heard a story like this. Their mother, you know, she had uh, kind of bohemian hippy-dippy ideas So, of Mm -hmm. course, when the judge heard those, it was like...
1: Yeah, he gave custody to the dead.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, a lot of people kind of believe in some of those things, like Mm -hmm. no milk after they're weaned. You know, my husband was like, no milk? What do you mean no milk? But there are a lot of people who actually go by that. No immunizing. um, Lots of things. But in that vein. So... um, By the time I got home, I I looked at him, I thought, this is a very interesting man, because when he went to court, one of the things he he said to the judge is, there is nothing their mother can do that I can't. I can take them to school every morning, I can pick them up, and I will stay home the rest of the day. And he he already made Jaws, and he had made The Sting already as an independent producer, so... He wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, I'm going to lose my job if I had right. to get this paternity leave off. Or He's already
1: established in his career. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So the whole thing was very interesting to me. And he actually did live like that. And then they went with their mother on the weekend. And he had something more interesting to say than all the other producers I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and then he had a car phone. But in those days, it it, it was the equivalent of a uh cb thing you you got an operator who put the call through oh wow so he had one of these in the car which nobody had so he he used that to call me on his way home well i was really surprised because most guys wait long enough for you to hate them to call you (laughs) (laughs) so i thought oh this is so interesting
1: Lily's funny Um, Have you thought about a
3: stand-up career uh, (laughs) later in life?
0: (laughs)
2: Um, But they do. And I I had gotten to the point, I didn't say this to Dick, but I had said it to other people, that I felt like they found this piece of paper with lint on it in their pocket and went, oh, yeah, I remember her. Let's call her now. No. I literally said to somebody I met, not to Dick. I'll give you the number, but you have three days to use it because I don't want the embarrassment of trying to remember where you were, where, you know, where I where we met. Yeah. Just don't do it to either one of us. So if you haven't used it in three days, just throw it away. Um, I like that
0: ticking time clock. Yeah,
2: yeah because I thought I'm not going to be your time? a piece of yeah, right, lint that right. you find. He, he proposed eight weeks later. And, all right, so I wasn't too far off. Yeah. <laughs> and One all, point
1: for Angelo. All of a sudden, Dick Zanic looked a lot taller. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, but by so our short guys. But by just our so wedding you know, day, I did character. say to him, "You're six feet tall." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was. He was. It was yeah. like a, a t- an entirely different idea to me. Everything. Um. But I did, I, th- I did think he was very interesting because of, of, of the story. He, on the other hand, thought I was interesting, but he thought I was tough. And somehow in his mind, tough was going to be more work than stupid. Right. Um, though, after he married me, he would say, you're not low maintenance, you're no maintenance. Because... I wasn't, you know, I can take care of things, my things and your things.
1: Did um, you ev- did you eventually like start to learn his business? Like no. after like, after he proposed eight weeks, you said yes. Yes. And okay. then we
2: got married eight weeks later. So we got married 16 weeks after we met. Got it. Um, and he had told all of his friends because particularly his second divorce had cost him so much money. He had told all of his friends, if I ever bring this up again, shoot me, do not let me do this. And now 16 weeks later, um, he, he wants to get married. And he said, this, is, this isn't like me. I never thought I would do this again. And um, the first the right 11 choice. years of our marriage, we didn't spend one night apart. If yep. he had to go to New York for the day, I would just go with him because having two kids and everything right away mm-hmm. meant we didn't have a lot of time to just talk. So I would take the opportunity of the flight so we could kind of get yeah
0: that was your date
2: caught up yeah that was our that was our <laughs> date so um and he said that he wanted to get married so fast because he thought he could lose me i think that he thought that because i have like natural boundaries so i think he felt mm-hmm. like oh, she's going to find out the truth <laughs> Lock that's it down he,
0: at a favorable rate. Before
2: actually, that's what he <laughs> used to say. He said, I didn't want you to find out everything. I wanted you to be.
1: He's like, she's not a runner, but I can see her leaving soon. So. And we
2: had, we had the most incredible marriage for 34 years. And, you know, most people's first year of marriage is difficult. At the time, I didn't think it was that difficult. Looking back, it was because you don't know the person. We never talked about anything. I didn't even know how he voted. Yeah. We, we kind of fell in love and would go to restaurants and talk baby talk. So we hadn't had a conversation of any of the things that you're supposed to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, a lot of people talk about how it is to be a son mm-hmm. of somebody famous and, and then follow in his footsteps. Well, you try being the third wife at 24 with a ponytail and see how serious you're taken. Mm-hmm. I mean, sons are a shoe-in compared to a third wife. And I I thought it was so brave of my husband because it was my husband's idea for me to come to work. So what happened is we get married after 16 weeks. And um, I had always worked. So I wanted to go back to work. What I wanted to do was go to Warner Brothers Music Mm. and work at A&R. And David Brown, who was wonderful gentleman and knew everybody said look i will get you a meeting with mo austin right away but you're going to put your marriage in jeopardy because dick's going to go away on some picture for a long period of time you're not going to be able to go because you're working and that's exactly why marriages don't last here because that isn't a good situation
1: yeah there's no stability in that
2: no yeah so um I didn't think what is the alternative. Because simultaneous to that, well soon after we got married, one Monday, when Dick was leaving for work, I said, I'm gonna look into skydiving. Yes. <laughs> well, that is actually how I worked for the Xanak Company. The Zanuck Brown Company. That was That's the answer. That's all you had to say. Skydiving? <laughs> all you had to say is I'm going skydiving for him to go, uh, I better keep figure out how to get her busy. That's funny. So he started bringing me all these things home. Can you read this? Can you go over these contracts? Can you make notes on this? And that was fine with me because I, I was busy. And that, this is
0: all to keep you out of a plane.
2: Yeah, so yes. <laughs> I right. didn't know that, but I did know he wasn't thrilled about the plane. That means he loves you. That's yeah. all. So I did all of that. Then he said, um, can you start coming in half day? So I said, yeah, sure. So then it, it went to half day. And, um, and what I did, which is something that I think all young people should know is Dick and David didn't have a company with lots of VPs and everything. It was Dick, David, and two assistants. What was falling by the wayside was huge because they were at a point in their career where agencies were only, only the top agent was submitting to Dick Mm -hmm. and David, uh, you know, things were piling up. There were relationships that they hadn't bothered to make because they were at a certain point in their career where they didn't have to. Right. So when I came in, first, I couldn't even believe how behind everybody was with the reading because only Dick and David read. And they and that's how Dick had run the studio. He, they made 16 movies a year at 20th Century Fox. Dick and D- D- David was a VP. They didn't have, like, 16 uh, VPs. So... They read everything and, and Dick felt that if somebody else could read MASH and know it was a movie, they'd be in his position. So why should somebody else read the material that won't recognize that MASH is a movie? Yeah. So he did, this idea of other people reading the material and giving you a synopsis to him was useless because the only thing that the person reading was gonna understand is it similar to something that they had seen? But they weren't going to be able to read something uh, strange in its way <clears throat> and, and, and realize yeah. you could make that. Yeah. So they read everything and they made 16 movies a, uh, a year. And then they had to have a varied slate because all the money came from a bank. So, And they didn't have any of the other things that studios started I mean, – by the time Marvin Davis bought 20th Century Fox, it owned Aspen, it owned Pebble Beach, it owned all Coca-Cola bottling and all that. But when Dick and my father-in-law ran the studio, they were a movie company. So you would make some big movies like Sound of Music, and then you would make MASH, mm-hmm. which nobody had these big expectations. It didn't star anybody, whatever. Or you'd make Panic and Needle Park, or even French Connection, because it didn't actually have stars that meant anything at the box office at that time. Right. right,
0: just just Gene Hackman.
2: Yeah, but still.
0: He wasn't there. But he wasn't, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so, so when he and David became independent producers, they st- st- kept the same thing going. I came in, and I just took up anything. And this is a big thing. To do what the people you work for do not want to do makes you valuable. Mm. Okay, they don't need me to go to a meeting with Robert Redford. But all of the things that weren't done, and the list of what successful people don't want to do is unbelievably large. Uh, that is how I learned the business, mm-hmm. and it is why they couldn't live without me. No, not but the you become a valuable member of the team when you're somebody that isn't 100%. like, and 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 I by the way I wasn't getting paid. So I was even more valuable. Yeah. So do you want to work
0: for us? Cause we're, we're looking <laughs> to hire some, some people. We have snacks over there. Yeah. You take as many as you want.
2: So that, and then it got, you know, it obviously got more, uh, involved, you know, like you got to be on every call. Well, I could make a deal with anybody by the time I'd been on every call for a year. You know, Because in in those days, the producer actually made the deal. Now you turn it over to legal affairs and business affairs. But in those days, you made all the broad strokes, and you turned that over.
0: When you say, I could make any deal having talked with someone for a year, what are the basic three or four elements? What they want, what I can deliver, and...
2: Well, you know, it it, it depends on what it is. If it was a book, it would be, what are you going to pay? So when we bought Rush, we paid a million dollars. That was the most anybody had paid at that point for the rights. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they don't get a million dollars right that second. But it's that, how long can you have the options for, you know, when all the rest of the money kicks in. Um, and you don't have to worry about per diems and things like that because it's a book. But it's still, you have to have that worked up. And it didn't get to a million you know willy-nilly that was the competition yeah so you get to 250 they get to 400 you know so it's like an auction and it got to a million and and we got the rights um but it was something that people wanted so after i had been working for them and they made the verdict uh
1: this is what early 80s now
2: yes okay okay early 80s um they had a discretionary fund. So that's why they were able to spend like a million dollars.
1: And what were they buying? Like options for things? Yeah. yeah. They
2: could are developing things. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and it, and it was a really good thing for them because they did have taste that was all like all over the place. You know, they had made jaws, but they had made, you know, sugar the Sugarland Express
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, which is where they became aware of of Steven Spielberg. So they were just everywhere that was a piece he wanted to really do he wanted to make the sugarland express um so that discretionary fund paid for them because it allowed them the freedom to buy and develop material that wasn't necessarily an obvious choice
1: and also being independent producers can't they now take it to warner's they can take it to other places they don't have to just work with with 20th Century Fox, right? No,
2: we had to work with whoever made our deal. okay. But in those days, you could get Turnaround. You could get Turnaround until Home Alone. Oh, wow. Home Alone was on Turnaround from Warner Brothers, and then it became this huge hit. And then after that, Turnaround was, I mean, it had to say flop on it for them to give it back to you. (laughs) Um, During this period of time, obviously, I was thinking about, what do I want to do? And I had found this. I went. One of the things that I did right away was I started going to uh, lunch with the agent equivalents of me somebody just in, starting, trying to get that could never get material to Dick or David. And I would say, I want you to send me what you didn't sell because you would get the material on Friday. And it, that you you would sell it by Monday but I had seen already if you couldn't get your boss to read it and that or sometimes you would say this is really good and and he the boss would say on Monday we'll see if anybody else is going to bid or you know it was it was so hit and miss mm-hmm. because you were totally dependent upon the people beneath you meaning your anybody who was reading your VP whatever and it didn't always get sold because they couldn't sell it Tuesday if nothing happened Monday. It was off the market. Yeah. So I knew that there was good material that hadn't been sold.
1: You said to find it. Yeah.
2: yeah. So I said, just send me everything that didn't sell.
0: And I think I watched a, an interview, uh, something with you on tape, where you said you read almost a 1,000 scripts or something like that before you found Cocoon.
2: Well, I, I didn't read a 1,000, but what I read was pretty bad. There's a reason why some things didn't sell. You know, one story in the bayou where everybody's feeding the people they killed to the alligator or whatever the hell it was. (laughs) You know, you know pretty soon. And you don't even have to finish that 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 might not be what you want to make. And at that point, I wasn't looking for myself. I was looking for for the company.
3: Right, right.
2: Uh, Now, Cocoon was this book. It's not the book that was available after the movie. It was a book that had been submitted... And the movie was actually about chapter 8, 9, something like that. So these aliens are in outer space, and they have left soldiers of theirs on Earth somewhere around the Bermuda Triangle. And they need to come back and, and retrieve them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they have carbon on their planet, and they know when the carbon goes through the atmosphere, it'll be diamonds. So they go to Amsterdam with all these diamonds that are, you know, rough diamonds to get them cut and everything. So that is how the movie starts. You're in outer space. Around whatever chapter it was, they had, they had obtained enough money to rent an apartment building that had been, the construction wasn't complete on it, had been kind of deserted. In the penthouse of that hotel, I mean, of that office, whatever, apartment building, they set up these kind of like um, spa things, like cabinets that they could put.
1: The cocoon, sp- the egg thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No,
2: they weren't even in an egg, really. Oh. I mean, it was the book was called Cocoon, but it they needed to be retrie- revived, retrieved and then revived. Mm. And some guys in a rest home, like next door, they would watch them leave every day and get on a boat and go somewhere. So they waited for these guys to leave. Then they'd go in the building, and they'd start playing with all these cabinets and getting in them and all that. And they started to feel younger. And that was why I wanted it. Because I had – and and actually, Driving Miss Daisy has the exact same thing, which is I I was one of those children that fought for autonomy right away. I mean, I was very young when I was like, I better get in charge of this because nobody knows what they're doing.
0: Right. Yeah, I can see that.
2: And then I also realized, even though I was young, the same thing happens to you when you get old. You're losing your autonomy and you are really fighting to keep it. So that's the thing in Cocoon that touched me so much.
0: The human part of it.
2: Yeah. And, and also this thing that my, like my mother would say this all the time. I look in the mirror and I'm so surprised because I still feel like whatever, 19, whatever. And I, and as a young person, I obviously didn't know what that meant exactly, but I did understand theoretically that you felt different than you looked. Mm. So when these guys start feeling better, now they start taking their wives to the the, the these spa cabinet kind of things. You know, a lot of them were like those old fashioned steam cabinets, like mm-hmm. your head sticking out thing, but you'd be f- fully immersed. Um, now they're they're, there it becomes like the movie they go out dancing they start having sex they start all of these things that were gone were back in back into their lives and just this idea of that i thought well this is worth it we're not i don't care about the carbon and going in the atmosphere or any of that this right here is a movie so um
1: the alien movie, but the human part was yeah. like the what well, you pull, was what you pulled out of it
0: in the fanciful <clears throat> way. Um, that to me is big. Um, when Robert Loggia and Tom Hanks are on that piano, he he's literally just like, "You've taught me how to be a kid again." Yeah, which is always inside. I don't care if you're ninety or hundred and fifty. You there's a part of you that will always be able to do that, access that, if you're willing to do if you're willing to go there.
2: Yes, and um, because nobody had bought the book. What I wanted was not even the book. I wanted a chapter out of the book. Yeah, Um, it cost twenty five hundred dollars to option. So Dick and David threw me a bone. It was twenty five hundred, which was nothing. Mm -hmm. And they said, "Well, you know, you develop it." So I developed it with a writer who only did a draft, and then. Bob Zemeckis came on board to develop it with me.
0: And he had he done romancing Stone? No, he hadn't been romancing the stone yet. No, has he it? wasn't no. hot yet. Yeah. yeah.
2: But he was somebody that if you had any sense, you could see. Yeah. Oh yeah. Was gonna be. He had some skills. And he brought Tom Benedict, the writer, on board. Uh, so we developed this, and you know, then he went and made romancing the stone, and whatever happened, it didn't. It didn't stay that. Way, but the major development of it from the book to the movie was done the three of us in a room wow and um and immediately we didn't want the the cabinets, right, so that's where we got the pool of youth, you know, so uh, these things started to change as we developed the story just because it couldn't be it needed it needed what the movie has a structure it needed real characters it, it just we took this idea and made it into the script.
0: Mm-hmm. But that's smart that you have the insight to grab that lightning in the bottle, even that kernel of that idea. Yes. The rest you can figure out yeah. as you go along. And you
2: do. You, you do. And my husband always said it's so much better to buy something that nobody loves, like books that haven't made it. Because they're not watching the movie going, oh, I liked the character in the book better. <laughs> and you do that when it's a loved book. You you go. Oh, I I don't like where they changed that.
1: Right, you're always comparing it. So he
2: so he so nobody had read any of this. So you really had the freedom to mold it into a movie. Um. Then nobody wanted to make it. You know, old people encounter aliens. Every movie I've made sounds so bad. <laughs> uh, I just.
3: As, Just the, as the pitch.
2: I mean, my husband could always turn the definition of what it was or the idea of what it was into something that didn't sound bad. But because I'm such a bottom line kind of person, I was I couldn't fancy it up. right. So old people encounter aliens was like <laughs> and yeah, so when Ron Howard came aboard, you know, so now fast forward, part of the thinking in this is this is like a side note, but it is my motivation. When you marry somebody who is financially in an entirely different place than you are, no matter what they say, you're not a partner. Mm. You're not. You know, like, it's our house. Well, you lived here with your ex-wife, and why isn't it her house? Why does she live in the Palisades? So very quickly, the fact that I wasn't living a life I could own, really own, was a real problem for me. So I had gotten this idea that I wanted to make a million dollars before my thirtieth birthday. On your own. On my own. Yeah. And um, both Ron Howard and I shared our had our thirtieth birthday on the on the set. He's like March thirtieth or something, and I'm April second. And so a lot of what was driving Happy me. Happy belated birthday. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of what was driving me was also I want to own my life. You know, I, I I'm not falling for this hours thing.
0: No, you want to prove yourself yeah. based on what you hours in L.A. Someone gave you was yeah. baloney. Yeah,
2: you know, you were actually there at your husband's pleasure, and if it didn't work out, you lived in the valley afterward. <laughs> they went from Bel Air to the Valley. Right. Is what sure, I'm saying. Sure. No. So I get it. I I didn't buy this for one second, and of course, my husband would try it all the time. Oh, are this, are that. No, I can't actually afford to fly to Catalina in 12 minutes for $2,400, okay? So it's not our anything. It's your idea, and it's your lifestyle. And it really gnawed at me. Hmm. Um, and we lived in a house that Dick had parents had built. So don't even say our house, okay? That, that's just baloney. And it wouldn't have even been our house if you said it was our house. It's not anything, not anything of its ours. Maybe like two wedding presents or something. So um, so this was something that really was there for me. Now, when you have a problem like that, you can't solve it in, in any short period of amount of time. And, of course, a million at 30 didn't do anything, but it did for me.
1: Yeah, it was your motivation. It, it was a yeah. goal yeah.
2: that I met uh, because the movie was a hit. But it was there for me. I knew it was something that I didn't like. Um, so we made so we developed the movie, we got Ron Howard, and Ron Howard said, Let's meet every old star, let's meet Rudy Valley, let's meet everybody from the silo, anybody who's alive, let's meet them. So it, the casting was incredible because you did meet all of these great people that hadn't worked in years. Yeah. And And we even had the idea that maybe when we got to Florida, we would cast some local Local. people. An actor aging is not a citizen aging. First of all, actors, either whether they've been on a stage or only movies, have projection in their voice. They're not talking like they're old. You know, they've had their, those instruments are still functioning. You know, they have their posture. They have everything because it was a tool of their trade. So it wasn't the same thing. And, um, but it was very, it was a lot of fun, including we had Joan Fontaine, whom you probably don't even know, but she was uh, a very elegant woman. She was Olivia de Havilland's sister, but they didn't like each other. It was like a big Hollywood story. And it, there was a lot of competition on who's a bigger star. Of course, if you're in Gone with the Wind, it, it kind of changes things. And she came in in her very elegant manner. And in the waiting room, we didn't make her wait, but was the lady who said, where's the beef on a commercial. Oh,
3: yeah. yeah. And
2: so, but anyway, it was fun. I danced with Rudy Valley, I danced with... Uh, Donald O'Connor. It, I mean, it was really fun.
1: Well, Brimley, he was yeah, a, Wilford yeah, Brimley. But yeah. at
2: that point, he had only worked with Duval.
1: And you're still in your twenties.
2: Yeah, I'm 29. I turned about, to, on the about movie. to be a millionaire. Yeah, so <laughs> it was fun. He Ron was right. It was interesting to to see because they had made it, and then you know Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy and Maureen Stapleton did so much theater but you know i don't know what don Amici had been doing but he came in with this very straight posture and that voice and everything and he was rather kind of dashing you yeah. know so it was very very interesting you you you, you I, we learned a lot we had a lot of fun and we cast the movie brilliantly i thought mm-hmm. so um so now we make the movie And I don't think the expectation for the movie was high by the studio at all. It was almost like, you know, Dick and David had this ability. And I think the deal at that time also may have had a green light at a certain budget kind of a thing. And we go and make it. And and while we were shooting it, we're we're in St. Petersburg, Florida. It became magical. You saw, and the same thing happened with Driving Miss Daisy. You saw, you heard things that you knew an audience was going to respond to. You, 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 you know, did you know it was going to be a big hit? No, but you knew people were going to relate to it. You never know what's going to be a hit. I mean, unless it's a Marvel thing, but (laughs) yeah, which we didn't have in those days, but you knew that people were going to be touched. My husband was far more sentimental than i was Hmm. you know when he would watch driving miss daisy with totally cut credits we'd previewed it and everything he'd still get like a tear in his eye when uh hulk and daisy would hold hands in the rest home and she would say you're my best friend
3: Hmm.
2: and he would say i don't understand Well, you don't even get a tear in your eye i said i was in the closet with the camera (laughs) because where we shot was a real house and we never had any room so I was scooching down on the floor. The camera was like right here when we shot it. I mean, why am I crying? I, You know, if I was going to cry, maybe I would have cried when I saw it happen.
0: Yeah. And it was 98 degrees in the room and everybody yeah. was sweating. And, oh, and...
2: yeah. You're in Atlanta. Oh, I mean, it doesn't uh-huh. matter what time of year it is. It's You have a different
0: experience. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and that is one of the things about making movies that's so interesting. Because you go to a new community and you're immersed in it. Getting back to, to that. So because I I don't have that kind of sentimentality that, you know, that I'm going to cry at a scene that I saw made, um, It's it was amazing how sensitive I am to feeling something,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, that when I see something, I know it has value in the fact that you will be. Moved or touched, or it will touch something universal, which, by the way, both Cocoon and Daisy did. You know, it, it wasn't just something that did well here; it did well everywhere.
3: Yeah,
2: I was I was so pleased it was a success. I mean, and 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 also, it's really nice to be a success when nobody has any expectations. For sure. So there's no idea that it's going to be a uh, this weekend opening is going to do anything. None of that. None of that to bog it down. And they did have previews, but the previews didn't determine anything because they weren't sophisticated to the point that they became where you could figure out what the opening weekend was based on the likes, the dislikes, and all of that. Yeah. And when those numbers went up. And, and, and like Daisy, what happened is both of those pictures built based on the fact that they stayed every weekend. So you didn't have some huge opening that started to peter out But you just had the same steady number every week and 30 weeks in, you know. So that's why it makes money because it's a word of mouth thing. You don't have the pressure. You lose some theaters, but you're moved to something that can actually take the business that you're doing.
1: Yeah, Going back to something a little more personal, how you're trying to prove it to yourself, make a million dollars. You were in the room with Zemeckis, with Ron Howard, everyone trying to build this thing. Was Dick always supportive? Was yes. he always like, "Listen, you do you, go get it"? Like, I'm here when you need me. Is it? Was that yeah, always? Yeah, I mean okay. that
2: that is one of the things that I was very fortunate about because at this point I was no longer just doing things that they didn't want to do. I was still doing that, but I was also meeting with agents and doing all of these things. I knew that the first couple of minutes of me opening the door and having somebody sit down. We're going to be a waste of time. In that, I was not what they expected, and they would already project onto me. So I'm right. like, oh, how how'd she get here? Yeah. So I would allow that amount of time to occur until they got it. And most people who left my office got it, you know. So it wasn't like Dick Zanuck lost his mind, you yeah. know, with his young wife, and and I benefited from that because I. So when people say, well, wasn't that offensive? No. I expected it. It was exactly what I would have done. If somebody takes their 24-year-old wife to work right this minute, I'm going to start gossiping. So <laughs> why wouldn't, why wouldn't they? Yeah, It wasn't offensive. It was human nature, you know, so, so it was fine. But that happened a lot. And then it quit happening because now I had a big enough circle of people right. that, and, and also, by the way, on a kind of a little bit of a separate note, my biggest champions were men. Hmm. We didn't have a lot of women in the business, and and um, and maybe that's why we weren't there for each other, sort of, you know, because each one of us was treated as like some wunderkind that came out of a, you know, from another planet. Oh my God, she's really smart. The expectation was so low. That as soon as you went beyond the expectation, you were something special. Yeah. But I, this was my project. So I had come kind of full circle in what I wanted to do. It wasn't like they, they did me a favor. Right. You know, well she works in the office and she's been a good girl and she works really hard. You know, we'll make her associate producer. It wasn't that at all. I found an idea the option was $2,500 that I probably could have paid out of pocket. I mean, I could have done that maybe, but it was the whole thing. It was the whole thing. And also I knew what I was doing. I don't, I knew what I was doing because I had done all of these things for Dick and David. They made the Island. There was an anticipation that it would have some big thing happen. And when we watched the dailies, uh, because I'm so honest, I would say to Dick, this, is, this doesn't look that good. And he said, wait till they add music. Now, I knew then, if you're waiting for the music to make the movie work, you don't have a movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, and of course, it didn't work with the soundtrack. That was Ennio Morricone. So you wow. know that the music isn't going to save you.
3: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd had this experience, you know, these, uh, the verdict. It was The verdict is when I decided I wanted to direct one day. Because I was watching Sidney Lumet, and he was like a magician. He literally was altering performance privately. Mm-hmm. He would go to the actor, and he would talk to him in a whisper. It was none of this thing of screaming, you know, let's do it again and put some pep in it. You know, it was something. He honored the actor. He You weren't embarrassed in front of your co-stars because you don't know what he said to you, what the or he said right. to the... The other actors, and because that was such a dramatic piece, the alterations were so subtle but so important. Hmm. And he had the respect of the, all of these actors. He, Paul Newman respected him, James Mason respected him. It wasn't the kind of thing that it was like, oh, yeah, another one of those. Yeah, um, and that whole thing impressed me so much.
1: That just must have been his style because I saw it behind the scenes when he did Dog Day Afternoon. And he was kind of very, very similar. Like he just yes. like was like a he was quiet.
2: Yes, very yeah. quiet.
1: Yeah,
2: and um, places a lot of faith in his his actors. actors. Yeah, and and I thought I'm gonna do that someday, and I'm gonna do it like that.
1: Clint Eastwood is kind of that way too, yeah. I believe. Yeah.
2: But Clint Eastwood, who is exactly kind of like that, doesn't have many conversations with the actor. Got it. Because I think because he's an actor, he feels like they'll find it, or maybe somebody whispered to him too many times or right, something true. I don't yeah. I don't know.
1: So Cocoon's a huge hit. Now do you find do you find driving Miss Daisy? do you do you we have
2: a, uh, somebody in our office in New York who says, "I have this play from Yale Prepar- uh, Repertory theater yeah. sorry, and it reads really well. It's been mounted as a play, I mean as a play there, but nobody it, it's over right so she sends it to me to read and of course it was me in every way i mean nobody's going to take my car away nobody's going to do any of this stuff i mean it was exactly what moves me you know that you she is a woman with a lot of pride and she has and because she's strong she has a son who's afraid to have to deal with this which is one of the reasons why the movie was so big in in the far east or or in asia in the asian market because they had dealt with being respectful to a parent in their old age
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and um so any any kind of uh country religion or anything that deals with this on a on a basis or constant basis had an affinity for it and i had an affinity for it because in a lot of ways part of the culture yeah Yeah. it's part of their culture in a way Um, I understood exactly how she felt. And that was my worst nightmare. And I was only like, at that point, 32 or something. So Dick and David read it. And, um, they really liked it. And now we go into this big thing because everybody else has read it. And now it's a competition. Every Spielberg wants it. This one wants it. And I would be in fear because I would be in fear of the fact that the numbers would get so high or that, uh, CAA would put a package together or something and we wouldn't get it we got it we got it because Alfred Urey, the playwright had the ultimate decision
1: on who he can sell it to yes
2: oh wow and he met with David Brown and I and that meeting made him feel comfortable so we got it off of that not because you know not
1: because the highest bidder won
2: well look at that point we were all high but he had that ultimate decision uh, that he could make, and that's what did it. So wow. we, we, it was off Broadway, and Dick and I went to see it, and uh, it was Morgan Freeman, and uh, obviously not Jessica Tandy.
1: Oh, Morgan but, Freeman was in the off Broadway production.
2: Yes, he had only been in some movie in a short little thing playing a pimp or something mm-hmm. but what he was famous for was some that child was an
0: electric theater company too I believe, yeah
2: if I'm not yes yeah. And, but he was famous for some morning show for kids so when we went back stage and talked to him and everything dick said you're gonna play the part in the movie and Morgan said no I'm not they're gonna make you use Sidney Poitier they're gonna right. make all these names that you know and dick said yes but we're gonna make it with you I don't think he believed it until...
1: He was on set. (laughs) He was on set filming. Yeah,
2: because he he didn't think he would get approved, you know, because it's not like you're a young man. He wasn't as old as the part he was playing. But there is this feeling like, if I haven't made it by this point, they're not going to let me be...
3: Anything. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: But of course, he was. And it was a huge hit. And... And Dick cast him as the president in Deep Impact. So, I mean, obviously, then he got to play God. We didn't make that movie. Yeah, right. but, um, um,
0: well, the first movie I ever saw him in was um, Lean on Me. He plays Crazy Joe Clark, uh, who goes into the Harlem school and turns it around. Yeah, that's right. That, that and Prince of Thieves were the but two But those movies. were both
2: after Daisy. Yes. Exactly,
0: exactly. So and I went back later and saw him in this and went, yeah. oh, wow, I, this guy's got
2: crazy good chops. Crazy good. And because when you saw him, and I I don't remember what your deep impact was, but that was your first African-American president. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And you bought it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. You did not question his authority, his anything. That was it. That's who the president is. And, um, And the fact that he can do all of these different things so well is pretty amazing when you're watching it. And also, you realize how long he had had to hone his craft, not even knowing where he was going. Yeah. Not even knowing the variety of parts he would play. I, and I had a, a lot of respect for him.
1: Was this at a time where someone like, <clears throat> like Dick can just, you, you're, that's your part, you're, we're casting you, like you didn't have to get studio approval, like you guys were the studio?
2: Well, we weren't the studio, but I had great faith in Dick's fight if Dick's saying you're gonna play that role, you're gonna play that role, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And I had had total faith that Dick would make that work. Uh, I didn't have any of the position that could do that. And also, quite frankly, even if I had, I would ruin it because I was a bottom line person. Mm -hmm. I would have said, are you crazy? What are you, stupid, don't you see it? Dick knew how to sell things. As were I was like slap slap you should have bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: from what I from what I read at that time, you guys looked up. You guys started the Zanuck Company. Yes, we did. And it was just was it just you and Dick? it was just
2: it, yeah. But when we when I worked for the Zanuck Brown, this Company, is late
1: eighties, correct? Eighty eight ish.
2: Uh, no, we won the Oscar and, and yeah, we won the Oscar when I mean, the movie came out in eighty nine.
1: Okay, so, and we so... made
2: Cocoon in eighty yep. four. Yeah, four. So because, you know, once the heat was off, once we owned it, now we had a movie nobody wanted to make. And when we made Cocoon, I had Dick promise me that if they ever approached us for a sequel, he would say no. Hmm. So now we're trying to get Driving Miss Daisy made and nobody's interested. And they're saying things, at least in Aliens, you had Donna Amici. You know, and you're like, you know, well, it didn't matter at the time that we had Don Amici. You just think it matters now. So um, they approached Dick about doing the Cocoon sequel. And for me, I felt like if I can't get a Driving Miss Daisy made, I don't know what I'm doing in the business. Because I did feel that sequels were a way to rip yourself off and to just agree That something that worked will work again, as opposed to, trust me, that worked. I can make another thing that works. I was just broken by it. And I said to Dick, you know, you made me a promise. And uh, he said, we don't depend on you for our lifestyle. If you want to be an artist, be an artist. But I don't leave money on the table. So I said, fine, but I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And I don't want my name on it. And his attitude was like, we don't need your name on it. (laughs) Except for when it was all done, the studio thought it looked terrible that I didn't support it in any way. So now I have them come in without Dick and give me the speech about being a team player. You know, this isn't what you do.
0: Right. The you fact- want to be a team player? Help me get Driving Miss yeah. Daisy going. Yeah.
2: So my, my name is on it anyway. But I felt if we can't get Daisy made, um, then I don't want to do this. You know, this is like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be embarrassed by my work. So uh, Dick said to me, you know, we've got to shelve this because you're getting turndowns from people whose calls I won't take. Um, I said, I can't do that. I can't shelve it and, and just wait for it. its time to come. I'm going to continue. And I got turned down by, like, a group of dentists in Australia that were trying to put together, like, a investor retirement fund in something. They didn't want it. Nobody wanted it anywhere. Because at one point, Warner Brothers said, you know, we'll take domestic if you can get foreign. Never anticipating that the movie would be so big foreign. So, um... Luckily for me and us, but me because I was on the line, uh, Jake Eberts, an American who lived in London and would pick up foreign on movies, liked it. And he took foreign and Warner's took domestic and we, we had a $12 million budget that nobody would approve. And Bruce Beresford just had so much faith in himself because he had been in this position before making a low-budget movie. He brought it down to seven and a half. So Warner's paid five, and the rest of the world was sold for the two and a half. And it was the biggest movie Warner Brothers had had, dollar per dollar. So yeah, Batman's bigger. Right. But...
0: At the time. At the time, yeah.
2: yeah. So um, so we, we got it made and you know we had no money and we Hans Zimmer hadn't done a movie in the United States yet he had come from Germany he was a, a young guy and he said he would do the score for what we had in the budget well what we had in the budget was 40,000 deliver a score for 40 that doesn't mean 40,000 fee and then you you get to make the yeah. music and he says I'll do it so now we make the movie and we have Hans do the score and um the executive at Warner Brothers says, I hate that score. You've got to get, you know, like a, you got to get an orchestral score and, you know, get James Horner, or somebody, James, you know, Johnny Williams, or somebody to do it. And I said, you didn't have the money to make the movie. Dick and I are actually on the line. It was a negative pickup for the contingency. We are personally on the line for the contingency. And now all of a sudden you've got 350000 you know, for a new score for the composer. I mean, it was like, I, I said, no. I mean, it was so offensive. Also, the score was the score. The score worked for the movie. So uh, we said, no, we're going to keep the score. And people did like the score. And in my negotiations with Warner Brothers um, for domestic, I was fighting for anything I could get. And one of the things that I had asked for was the rights to the soundtrack. Just because I thought it would be precedent setting because it wasn't something that you gave producers. Right. But we were a negative pickup and that, that was a bone they threw me when I started driving me crazy music publishing for that soundtrack. And for a long time it made money in commercials and you know, whatever. I just wanted something, you know, like you're making me do this, you gotta give me something yeah, back right. and I want, so we had the music rights. But, um, but that's not why we fought for it. We fought for it because he was inspired enough to do this for 40000 all in. You don't like it because you can tell it's instrumental. But guess what? If it, if it works to picture, nobody cares if it has violins. <laughs> you do.
1: That's so like, all
2: of a sudden you've got money yeah. that you didn't have before that we could have really a sudden, used. Yeah, that's, a, that's
1: a big slap in the face. Yeah, that yeah. we
2: could have really used during production. I mean, we really could have used it during production.
1: So that movie not only did it win Best Picture for you and Dick, but
2: Jessica won Best Actress.
1: She won Best Actress. Bruce
2: wasn't nominated.
1: You got a Hans Zimmer score. Hans Zimmer score not known yet. And then Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman breakout. And
2: and then we had you know everything got nominated. And Dick and I were in London when the nominations came out, and so we watched that live. Thing that yeah, happens yeah, yeah. At, at the academy, and I don't remember who it was that year, but um,
0: do you find that to be pretty consistent when you're delivering on several layers of a big movie? The person who doesn't know anything about music sits in an office giving you notes like, how, no, does that make sense? My yes, question,
2: your question makes sense, but it's worse than that. Okay, cool. what Tell happens us. is you're doing a big orchestral score. They come and hear it. They don't watch it against picture because picture is like for the whole orchestra and everything. It's kind of fuzzy, whatever. They lay on a couch and they're listening to this live music and they're just enchanted and everything. Now you go to cut it to picture and they're like, we don't like the score. You were in the room. You don't like the score because you've just figured out it goes with picture. You know, as long as you're laying on the couch listening to it, it was great. So you can go that far and have somebody want to dump a score. And sometimes even a director wants to dump a score. So it happens. It just happens. Um, It doesn't happen if you can communicate. You know, when I had uh, Eric Clapton do uh, the score for Rush, he had come after he had lost his child. Tears, I,
0: tears of um, tears of Heaven. Yeah. Tears so, of heaven.
2: what happened was, I had cut the movie to like solos of his that I had stolen from like everything he'd ever done live, reco- anything. So, when he watched it, he saw it had slide guitar from this song and it had all, it was scored with the temp score was his, his music. Now, um, and we have a spotting session, everything's great. Um he says yes to it right away. He comes in to see the movie and he says, you know, I I only can watch 90 minutes cuz I have an appointment. His appointment was a fitting at Armani. <laughs> but um he stays. He stays. He doesn't go to his appointment. He just keeps watching it and then he turns around and I I I think right then and there he said he would do it. Did and he... you
1: did you have a relationship with him prior? No. With- so you no. sent him all this like a prepackaged cuts of the movie. I started
2: asking his agent before the his child, his little boy died. So um, I had a conversation with the manager and he said, well, you know, you know, I'll bring I, I kind of got the manager interested um, probably just so he could get me off the phone. <laughs> now, that, that's happened a couple of times. Yeah. Where just to get me out of their office, they say yes. So, but that's okay. It doesn't matter what the reason was. Well, as as they say yes.
0: <laughs> the, as long when as you it got worked. the answer you're looking yeah. for, hang up.
2: <laughs> so um, then his little boy died. Mm. So I thought.
0: That was like on his four, like right before yeah, his 46th birthday or something, right? Yeah.
2: The baby was like just going to be five. Right, right. So I thought, well, that's that. Now, like uh, four or five months pass. And I think I'll call the manager in case he wants to work. Because sometimes when you've had something like that, you want to work, but it's not in public. Right. He's not performing. Nobody knows what he's doing. So I call the manager and I put it to him that way. If he wanted to just do something, uh, you're let open me know. To work yeah. With him, right. Yeah. Just let me know. I didn't. There was no pressure, no nothing. Yeah. Because I, you're not going to do that to somebody in that position. Of course. So, I guess that, you know, his, he, it whetted his appetite because then I, he came, to, we met him in New York. We had already spotted the first day we, we were in a very small studio and we picked a cue. And I, and I said, I'm going back to the editing room. And I come back at five o'clock. And the cue that he's done is on a, on a Spanish guitar. You know, it's no electric, it's no Mm -hmm. nothing. And what it was, it was the emotion that he was feeling seeing these people in this situation. And I said to him, but I want the exact opposite. I want the emotion they're feeling. Right. I don't want what you feel because that doesn't bolster what they're seeing. You know, so... His manager said to me, you know, you can't criticize Eric. Nobody tells him they don't like something. They
1: haven't met you yet.
2: Um, (laughs) And I said, and I said to the guy, the manager, and I said to Eric, I need to tell you now. I don't want this to be one of those situations like I've seen where somebody does a whole score and then it's dumped. I need you to know right now so that we, you know, we're on the same page. So... I think he was going to like quit. But we sat on the stairs of this building, and, and we talked about it. And I said, the only problem we have is we don't have a language to communicate with yet. But we will get that. Yeah, I will figure that out. But I was honest, so not to waste your time.
0: I think people actually respect if if you actually have the... Well, one, if you're accurate. And two, if you have the courage to actually say that to someone, which a lot of people don't.
2: Yes, and so... He said, okay, but you have to be here every time I'm working. You can't go to the editing room anymore. And I said, fine, because he didn't want to do a cue again and then have me come in and not like it. So fortunately for me, he didn't like to really start working until about 11. Well, that gave me morning in the editing room, and then I would go to the studio, and... I was there for every cue. I actually have executive producer credit on the soundtrack.
1: So you you were directing this, producing this, and helping with the score. Well, I don't.
2: I mean, I don't know that I deserved any credit. I, I felt like I was doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm the director. I have an idea of what I want this movie to sound like, and what the score. And I know what I want the score to evoke in people who are watching the movie. And he is the perfect person to do that so um and we had the language and we we had a great time even i mean it was fun you know once we got over the little bump of i don't think so um and i probably wasn't even more tactful than that uh because i always feel like don't pussyfoot that's not fair and um
0: yeah, I could see why you didn't get along with people in LA. Cuz that East Coast, Boston is like, look, I'm just going to say it the end. Deal with it. I, you know, your feelings will come and go, but let's get to work. Yeah. That's opposite for most of the culture in LA.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which is, "Oh my god, I love it." And then when you leave, "I don't like it." It's it's not Well, great.
2: that's what I had witnessed. And so many times on different that. things that Such I I've never time. I've never done that to anybody. Yeah. Ever. I don't have any blood on my hands that I led somebody down a path of anything because I'd say it immediately. So um, we had a great time, and it was the beginning of a 35-year relationship that we had. Um, And there was so many things that was interesting about it and fun, like he had Buddy Guy come, and they recorded live, you know, with everybody. It was just great. It was interesting. It was great. It was... Something I felt that I was wit- witnessing something very special. It was—it's a lot of the things that's in my work. It was a sense of autonomy. Um, I didn't do well with authority. I was—I was a good child. I didn't do anything wrong. You but just didn't
0: like being told what to do.
2: I didn't like being told what to do, and you had to have just cause. You couldn't just be, it, don't give me because I'm the parent. Right. You know that wasn't a good enough answer. <laughs> and i did have this thing that happened about maybe 10, 11 and 12 which is nobody knows what they're doing you know that would be around the time my parents were divorced i was like i've got to grow up and be in charge of this because they don't know what nobody knows what they're doing and i even remember my mother having girlfriends and they would and i was eavesdropping cuz you know i'm first born and i have to know everything and i would eavesdrop on these conversations and i would think these women are really not doing the right thing. You know, it was like, <laughs> I didn't say anything. I wasn't precocious that way, but I would think it. And um, so that came very young, but I did not use it in my youth. That's actually maybe a little wise, believe it or not. Um, yeah. But, but you knew
0: already to start thinking for yourself. And that just because somebody is older than you or has a higher position, that doesn't mean they have a clue what they're doing. And this is
2: what Dick meant by he thought I was tough. You know, because I, and I actually was tough when he met me because I was single in LA and my bullshit monitor was just going off the charts all the time. Mm. So I wasn't, I was always who I was, but I was a little bit, it was a little heightened here by how much bullshit there was. Yeah. There was a lot. I mean, when I first went to work for Dick and David and I was just picking up trash and doing reading shit and organizing things, and, and I remember he, they would have me go over their deals, which I'm not a lawyer, and it's not like I knew everything about their deals. But one of the first deals that I went, th- uh, I did notes on, had something that could have potentially led to an exclusion if it was nominated Hmm. now somehow i knew you don't want that and i brought that to dick and david's attention and they like everybody got in trouble the lawyers got in trouble everybody got in trouble how could that be but you know when you make these deals when you think you're at the boilerplate part not necessarily (laughs) so um they had me doing just about anything, and the good thing about that is how much faith both Dick and David had in me. You know, they were asking me to do things that seemingly what would make you think she knows that, right? Um, and 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 I was lucky because that gave me an opportunity to do things that maybe I shouldn't. Have, you shouldn't have assumed I knew how to do, but I did.
1: So, but when you go back a little bit, so so when you got the rights to rush which you said was you finally got for a million dollars and you wanted to, you already knew you wanted to direct this? No. Oh.
2: <laughs> That's an interesting story I'll tell you. What happened is we got Rush and there was all this interest. Oh, hold on. There, we got Rush and there was all this interest in, um, in it There, everybody wanted to be in it and all this stuff. So Dick got Bob Town, Robert, yeah, Robert Town, Town, Chinatown, all these great movies. Days
1: of Thunder.
0: <laughs> they, yeah cold trickle yeah.
2: um and at that point tom cruise was interested because of bob town yeah in in um in the material so bob takes forever <laughs> i mean forever and i was the wrong personality to deal with him so dick dealt with him because he's one of those people I, god rest his soul i think he's passed but He's one of those people that wants to talk on the phone for, like, a long time. And I don't really even want to talk on the phone, and, but I really want to know why you're calling. So Dick dealt with Bob Town. I mean, it was, like, hours and hours and hours. So he finally turns something in, I think. Anyway, he says in a meeting that Kristen, the girl, mm-hmm. should sleep with the Greg Allman character— To prove to her partner, Jason Patrick, that she'll do whatever she has to do to be a partner. I said, oh, hell no. I mean, I am so tired of movies where people have to sleep with somebody to prove something. You have to know that she's somebody who wouldn't sleep with anybody. She will get the job done. Because one of the things that attracted me about that movie was that she was a good partner. When she had to go through cold turkey, she was alone. When he went through it, he had her. Yeah. So all of these things, and now we're going to have her sleep with the enemy? Oh, no, we're not. So that is when I got the idea that I have to direct this.
1: Did Robert Town end up doing the whole script?
2: No, we weren't. We, uh, that movie would have, I would have.
1: Been a if, different movie.
2: No, we would have never gotten a draft. Oh. <laughs> because I think, because he went from that to Days of Thunder, which he did because he met Cruise and everything from yeah. doing this thing. And I think the reason that worked, and he did deliver, is because there was a clock ticking. Like, we're shooting tomorrow, you know? I think that when it was a, it's a development process... It takes his time. Yeah. And he yeah. also took his time on, you know, other material that he had worked on. But bringing him into polish like that was his thing. You know, I he see. did it, and he, you know... But it was that.
1: Casting Jason Patrick and Jennifer Jason Lee, were they... They weren't. Jason Patrick wasn't big star no, yet. Right? No, no,
2: he had only done. Um, Lost, uh, was Lost Boys before this? Or yeah, Solar Baby? He, yeah, but that because it was an ensemble piece had not highlighted him exactly. Right. So So um, we he comes for a meeting. And um, and he says he's all about the director and who's directing it, and I said I am, and he says no.
1: No, I'm not doing the movie, or no, you're not directing the movie?
2: Both. I yeah. mean, it was just no. Yeah. You know, he was like waiting for Scorsese to call him, and now I'm sitting in this room with this shit. A little bit arrogant. You know, yeah, that's the guy's wife and whatever, and no. So um, we let him go, but I say to him, it's your part until whenever. Yeah. So you're walking away, but I want you. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. remember what we did, but finally I just seduced him into saying yes. I mean, that's the bottom line, not in the true sense of the word, right. but in that it's yours. I don't want to meet anybody else. There is no reason for you to believe I cannot do this. And then, well, are you going to include me in things because James Foley did and all that? Of course I am and all that, whatever. So, and then I had the best experience with him. So. Everybody else would call me and say, is he difficult? I would say, he was great. And he was. We really had a working relationship, partly because it took me so long to get him to say yes that he knew what he was dealing with. Mm. So it was perfect. It was perfect. We could do exactly what Sidney Lumet did. I could go and whisper the smallest thing, and he could do that. It was so interesting. And the other thing that was very interesting to me directing it was... That same thing in me that knows if something is—I don't know—or oh, this is moving—happened with performance. I had like a Geiger counter for truth.
3: Hmm.
2: When the actor would would deliver something that came from some truthful place in them, I was like, "Cut! Check the gate." I mean, it was—it was like a thing went yeah. off in me, and. I mean, I didn't anticipate that. Nobody had ever mentioned that this happens, but it did happen to me. It was like, I, I feel this. And because Jennifer is such a great actress and Jason is incredible too, I would feel this truthfulness in performance um, that made it just like a magic thing to me.
1: Were you happy the way it it came out, even though it wasn't a giant commercial success or anything were you happy with the way
2: um it came out at Christmas, which it shouldn't have I yeah. mean I don't nobody's in the mood when they open their present and go see a couple of drug addicts right but um uh, the only thing I did not like that I was kind of talked into and I say this on the you know the real on whatever format it is right uh I didn't like the bookends. I did not like the thing with uh, the Greg Allman character at the beginning and then finishing it that way. I just don't like things like that. And, you know, Dick argued with me and Pete Dexter argued with me. And, you know, you, you'll you see it's great, but I instinctually didn't like it and I didn't like it when it was finished either. Hmm. Um, but I liked everything else. Yeah. I wouldn't have changed anything, but I didn't I don't like devices, you know. It just
0: And that was just a hill you didn't want to die on or you couldn't get it taken away?
2: I think the thing is is that I didn't like the idea, but I didn't know that it would be offensive to me. Mm. You know? So I didn't die on the hill because I wasn't positive. I just knew theoretically I don't like this idea.
1: And now was Tears in Heaven Oh, so, okay, g- so what gonna, happened? Going to be released already, and he happened to put on the soundtrack.
2: No, when I went, when we, he and I were spotting, he said like the second day or something. We were in the Four Seasons Hotel, and he said, "You know, I've been playing with a a little song, and if you wanted it for the movie, I would let you have it." And he, I hear this little dat in those days, uh, and it's tears in Heaven." But he it doesn't have a bridge yet or anything, which is why he ended up bringing um, this incredible songwriter. That's
1: okay. That's okay. It's okay.
3: <laughs>
2: so when Eric won all these uh, Grammys and stuff, so did that writer. Oh, okay. who's written a million great right. songs? You know, it's this is long haul COVID. My doctor is me.
0: <laughs> I'm not. I'm not judging you at all. Uh, Will Jennings?
2: Yes. So. Eric has the song was pretty complete. He kept saying doesn't have a bridge. It doesn't have a bridge. But I think he just. I think bringing somebody on was a safety net of sorts. And the first time I heard it, I thought there's no way this is just too personal. Yeah. There's no way. So, um, and I had tempted. To I Am Yours from Derek and the Dominoes. So it already had this, you know, pretty piece in it when she's running on the beach, um, which obviously wasn't gonna be in the, in the movie, but I didn't know that this could be in the movie either because I thought it would take an audience out. You know, it's acoustic, it's just his voice and the guitar, it's personal. Uh, You know, and it wasn't until we were mixing and he said, I want you to put it in. So the audience that heard it heard it the first time in the movie, which was not that big a a thing. But then it started getting radio play. Yeah. So it was the most successful thing about Rush (laughs) was Tears in Heaven.
0: I mean, you still I mean, you still pulled down something pretty impressive
2: with that. Yeah. Well, but the most he,
1: successful thing in Rush, really though, was that relationship—the 35-year relationship that you now have with him. Yes. It's really what came out of it.
2: Yeah, that's what came out yeah. of it. And the thing is, is that if he, if it, he didn't put it in my soundtrack, it would have never been released. It was because because one of the things that he didn't want was to make money from anything like that. Right. And he really didn't think it being in a soundtrack. I mean, how often does a song come out of a soundtrack? And become tears in heaven, so he thought, "Oh, it'll just be in there. I will have laid it down, but whatever." Yeah, and and that's why it that happened.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think where, like maybe maybe evanescence out of uh, Daredevil. Yeah, but
2: but that's so rare. You can see that that's a song that somebody said we need we need a song here. So you kind of know from the get go when you need something, Mm -hmm. and you know, I did that same mistake with Cocoon. I put some song in it that didn't even work.
0: But you tried, yeah. But you still had, like, you can't, you can't hit bullseyes every single yeah. time. You still yeah. had like You'd nine like no, things you in a row, see the
2: twelve nominations that occurs when I miss. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's probably what, what your husband also saw in you as well. Because I would the, say that because the other previous relationships were probably yes, 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 and you were like, you actually questioned him, and like did things differently.
2: Yeah, and also because I would just get things done, he all of a sudden thought, "Oh yeah, this isn't high maintenance. Look at all this shit she does." Also, Dick and <laughs>
0: they—they—they're not entrusting you with things that are important because they don't think you're capable and yes, competent. Yes, exactly.
2: And so did I, I mean <clears throat> I got to direct Rush because of Alan Ladd Jr. He was r- running MGM. He, he, we had known him. He was a childhood friend of Dick's, but I had known him my entire marriage. He had such great faith in me. He actually helped me get the credit on Cocoon because the first time we had the conversation, it was getting ready to get made. Dick and David had only given me associate producer credit because they said, we don't share a card
0: hmm.
2: with anybody else. And, you know, I said, well, how about a third card? You know,
0: <laughs> We can fix that. How about four cards? So man? we
2: were having dinner with Laddie, and I said to him, does this seem unfair to you? And he looked at Dick, and he said, you can't do that. Everybody knows it's her project. So that was the embarrassing moment that Dick had to have to give me my right rightful credit. And um, there was a great old agent that had kind of adopted me. He was like Jimmy Stewart's agent and all of this. He had made like the first profit participation deal for an actor. And I would have lunch with him every Thursday at Hillcrest. So one day we're having lunch and I learned so much from him. And also the fact that this man who had seen and talked to everybody and um, just saw something in me. So one day I'm, I'm there and talking to him And this is before Cocoon, and I said, you know, I'm not getting paid, but somebody at MGM has offered me a job where I would get paid, and I have to say it's highlighted the fact that I have a value because somebody else is willing to pay it, and Dick and David aren't paying it. And he said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. They haven't been paying you? And I say, no, because every once in a while when it comes up, Dick says, what is it that you want that you don't have? Well, that's not a good answer, but I didn't argue, you know. Mm. So um, he, George Chasen was his name, and he called Sherry Lansing, and he said, uh, "We need to make a deal." And he made my deal
1: for me you, to get paid for this from Dick and David.
2: But I became a part of the overall deal. Got it. But every time, and then, then we once I had won the Oscar, I knew to use that to direct Rush, I knew that there was never going to be a moment where it was going to be an easier yes than that. Yeah. And so we went to Laddie, and Laddie said, I would do a movie with Lily directing any day. So again... Because you keep your word. Yeah, and, and also by that point, you know, he really knew me. Yeah. You know, and he he knew my personality, he knew how I perceived things and everything. So, um, you know, I owe a lot to those men, besides Dick Zanuck and David Brown, yeah, who saw uh, the potential that they believed I had.
1: Now, to this day, Rush is the only feature you've directed? Yeah. Because you've done television... Obviously, we're going to talk about the Faith Hill music video probably next, but that's the only well, feature you've done. What happened
2: is after Rush, because I got great reviews, and I don't read reviews because. But Dick loved reviews. But I said the guy that didn't like this movie and now likes this one is still a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> so why am I going to read this stuff? Yeah, right. <laughs> so Dick would put like good ones on my desk of like all the movies yeah. that we made, but I really wasn't that interested in that because I knew if I didn't like the movie, I didn't really care what anybody else said. And if I did like the movie, I didn't care what anybody else said. So I don't care if you like something that I'm embarrassed by.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know What good is that? I yeah. don't like it. Right. So you're not gonna change my mind. I did it, I don't like it. Yeah. So it's the same thing if I did it and I love it. You're not gonna change my mind. You can't take anything away from me. So, um, so I didn't read the reviews. But Dick would keep bringing me reviews. He said, "You can't believe the reviews on Rush." And this Gary Arnold at the Washington Post that's never given us a good review on any movie Dick and David and I have made, it gives you a good review. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, okay." Yeah. So um, I was like now a real player. And the one thing that happened, I was immediately on all these actors' lists.
3: This to, guy to work for, with to work
2: with. Yeah. But like stars, he'll work with you. This one won't work with you. That. Now I get some kind of sophomoric freeze. You know,
3: uh,
2: I'm reading movies. Like, they sent me Primal Fear twice because Richard Garrett approved me. Dang. And I'm like, oh, you going to really believe the guy? I could? You know, not knowing who Ed Norton yes. was. Yeah, that was right.
0: the first movie I ever remember yeah. seeing Edward Norton in. Whoa.
2: Yeah, and so, you know, but you start to question everything. And because I'd had this experience of this Geiger counter thing, I thought it has to be something I will immerse myself in. And uh, so primal fear. I um, nope. the firm because it wasn't the firm that ended up getting made. Hmm. It was the firm starring Patrick Swayze with a script that needed. I mean, it was uh, like so they. Paramount it wasn't made, Sydney
1: Pollock and Tom Cruise. No, yeah, yeah. Paramount
2: made my deal in minutes. It was the most I was ever going to make on anything. Probably. Well, no, but yes. Right. <laughs> um, At the time. Yeah. And I went home and I was so haunted by, I, I had to like go to Nashville in a couple of days. And I was so haunted by how mediocre it was. Yeah. And I had been kind of, you know, driven into it. My agent wanted me to do it. Scott Rudin was producing it. Dick was saying, what are, what's your problem? You know how to do this, you'll make it great. And I said, I don't have a script. Yeah. And I didn't have the kind of power that Sidney Pollack had to say, you know what, this script's no good. We're starting from scratch. So I got out of that. And of course, all the agents and all the people who talked me into doing it, when you want to get out, disappear. I'm the one that has to call Stanley Jaffe. I'm the one that has to call Very all of these all of these people. Yeah. Nobody Now nobody... They're all there people.
1: to collect the money, but not yeah. to say no. So nothing that you can sink your teeth into that you were really passionate no, about. No, but if,
2: if I really tell you how bad it was, you'll just look at me like I'm... <laughs> I was out of my mind, but it, it was this fear too. If you've had, and, and then, and I've said this to other directors, heat dissipates in that moment when you're getting that much material and everybody's approved you, you don't think, you know, I probably got six more weeks of this or whatever. Yeah. It, but it does. You are hot and you better make some smart decisions right this minute, you know? And, and that's
0: usually when I, to correct me if I'm wrong, when people bring you, terrible decisions because it just got money attached to it yeah, or at least mediocre ones that will immediately kill what created
1: the heat
2: yeah like what's the movie that morgan freeman did with brad pitt
1: uh, seven. seven i James. got
2: that i got that script it was with johnny depp and denzel now wow. here's why i didn't do it
3: that might be a because good
2: i didn't know that david fincher was going to figure out that there's a blackout in new york and so all the lighting was gonna be flashlights. And I knew from making a rush that if it says that this guy dies of this, this way, people are gonna be throwing up in the aisles. I knew I didn't know how to finesse the darkness mm-hmm. of these sins that everybody who gets it does. I thought, I, you know, David Fincher did a great thing. Yeah. All flashlights, everywhere they go, there's no electricity. So you saw something, you didn't see it, you don't know what you saw. That was brilliant, but I didn't come up with that idea. So I kept thinking, I don't know how to make that, so that you're not just cringing. Because when I do something, I will do it all the way. You know. Yeah. Jason Patrick literally put a real needle in his arm. You know, we looked. Both of us looked at that retractable thing and went, "Oh, nah, that doesn't really work." And luckily, he was on the same page as I was. So, but that's why I didn't do it. Not because I didn't want to work with everybody, but because I thought. You will be, people, I will make it the way it's written. Lights will be working. And then what's going to happen?
1: When you go back and watch the films that you've passed on, are you, do you, do you like the way they came out? Are yes. you like, oh, Primal Field was great. But I would not have done that.
2: Yeah, I didn't, no. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, like I was on Robert De Niro's approved list. And I don't remember if a movie came to me. But I was approved by him if something did. Yeah. But um, I mean, I wanted to do this again, but it was a combination of fear and a failure, Mm -hmm. which you can only imagine with my personality. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I would have like self flagellated myself (laughs) somewhere. (laughs) Um, Nah. And. No, impaled myself. Yeah, impaled myself. Yeah, yeah, we got you. Turn yourself off. Yeah, yeah. And um, that it. I waited until the heat dissipated.
1: What about something like today?
2: Well, today. Do you you have
1: an itch at all?
2: No, I always have an itch. Okay, but one of the decisions that I made, um, probably a little bit before Dick died, is I said I'm retiring the knee pads. Everything I ever made, the begging, the fighting, the pushing was so unreal Mm -hmm. that 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 I really was at a point where, yeah, I can get this made, but I can't fight to get this made like I did. You know? Because when I won the Oscar and I looked out into the audience and I saw all of these people that who had said no, I knew they weren't gonna necessarily say yes to the next thing. Right. So I, I knew that Success doesn't make it easier unless you start playing the game. Mm. You know, unless you start making things that they have, see it as an opening weekend. And if I had a partner, if somebody came to me and they said, you know, they were a strong producer, that they were gonna do the fighting, I would've been, I'll do it. Yeah. But I didn't wanna be out like it, you know, Dick came on board Daisy, back on board Daisy, once I had the foreign deal and the Warner Brothers deal. But the fighting for all of that, I did alone, and I knew I didn't want to keep doing that.
0: Yeah, you only got yeah. so, much, so much heavy lifting you can do before it starts to burn you out.
2: Yeah. How
1: did so one of our favorites? I'm a giant country fan. How did you end up getting the 19? Is it 97? I think it was uh, yeah. Faith Hill. Breathe, Breathe video, which won a bunch I, of awards. I had her itself.
0: album and her poster in my room. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I had done a, a bunch of videos by that point, but for like uh, Wilson Phillips and oh, okay, what uh, you know. So I had done music videos, and because it was like a nice thing to do to keep my creative juices. It's like a short thing, and you know, it works or it doesn't work or yeah. whatever, and you and you feel it. So,
1: and this was at a time when videos were actually like production. Like it was like like now well, yeah. that like now mean, you don't well, watch any videos. You
2: had you wanted high circulation right. on MTV. Right. I mean, it was at a time that anytime you turned on MTV, you were watching videos. music yeah. videos now
1: it's like TV shows.
2: So, um so her manager approached me and said, you know, who had seen that I did things and I guess it sounded like a name that was going to do a video. And he said, would you do Faith Hill and I listened to the song and then I as I said to you, I asked him if she I watched some of the old videos. And I asked him, will she do sexy? And he said, oh, she's very – and she really is very sexy. Very pretty, yeah. Uh, And just her movement and everything. Because after that, I also did a video with her and Tim in black and white in Paris. And it's a very – she's like that. She's just – and so I, I, I think I met her once before I shot the video with wardrobe because she was touring. And then all of a sudden I'm hearing it everywhere I go. But Not... she she was
1: game to do everything that you yes. envisioned. Yeah. Everything. Okay.
2: Everything. And it was hot. It was hot in the desert when we made that. And we made it in the desert because this light that I wanted really happened in the desert with a high sun through a pink sheet. So it was it was just perfect. You got the softness, you got you got everything. And, you know, you had nature helping you along right. instead of rigging shit for a day. <laughs> um, and I cut it, and she was happy. Her management was happy. Uh, I, I didn't get notes. I don't—nobody—if I got a note, I obviously took somebody out of their right. note. <laughs> I always say, well, that's a good idea. Let me think about it, but—
0: Then just let's yeah, do it anyway. Yeah, 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 just do know. what you're going to do.
2: <laughs> um. Anyway, everybody was happy, and then it started playing. So songs started playing all the time. In in those days, because it was a video thing, the video played all the time. It was on heavy rotation, and it crossed over. Yeah. So everybody was happy.
1: Were you then, like, the go-to director of videos? Yeah, I probably turned
2: down a bunch of them that if I remembered would be embarrassing. And then I did one with uh, her and Tim in Paris in black and white, it was a reproduction of all these great old black and white pictures of Paris. And they used that without the lyrics for like two years when they were touring. Oh, no way. It was on stage. They would be like, the, because it was very romantic. Yeah. It was very pretty and all of that. But that friendship, like the thing with Eric Clapton, paid off in when we did the Oscars in 2000. And we had this Burt Bacharach uh, medley mm-hmm. that he had. Don and and we had Whitney Houston, and the night before the Oscars, we had to do a live rehearsal. And she comes in and she starts singing another song.
1: Whitney Houston does.
2: Yeah. So Burt Bacharach sitting at the piano and he goes like this. (laughs) (laughs) So I get up. I've been sitting in the audience and I go to him and I say, "I said we will fix this." And Dick talks to her management and he says why would you let this happen why would you let why did you say yes why would you let this happen you can see she's not in good shape why would you put her in a position like this i mean he was really he was really kind of beside himself that you represent somebody she's your bread and butter or bacon and eggs whatever and you let her, and it was the first time I knew somebody was stoned from just seeing their mouth, because she had these big sunglasses on, but the mouth wasn't really m- moving. It was the first time I thought, oh, yeah. She's you, a Yeah, you don't need just the eyes to know somebody's, and we let her go. And Dick said that night to the management um, She's not, yeah, she can't, can't do, do it. It's going to be an
1: embarrassment This was the night before everybody.
2: the Oscars? Yes, the night before the Oscars. Because <clears throat> also, Dick said, this is good what the whole show is going to end up being about. It's going to end up right. being about the night Whitney Houston couldn't you know, sing, yeah. sing. So I went and called Faith Hill. And she said, oh, yes, I'll come and do it. But I don't know if there's going to be any clothes left. Because, you know, all the designers bring their stuff. Right. And then it gets picked by different actresses and everything. Now this is the night before. You know, What's left? But she said, "I'll just get somebody to work on it right now, and we'll get on on a plane." I mean, luckily they were touring, so they had a plane to get on, Um, and they landed. And around the same time, you know, I thought Bert arranged to be able to rehearse with her that morning of the show. And when we started shooting, I guess it like I don't know what time it was in the afternoon because you have to broadcast to New York at the right time. She had dresses, she was on the red carpet, she got on stage, she belted it out, and it was perfect. And so if I didn't have that relationship that I could just call somebody and say we're in trouble, I don't know what we would have done. Yeah. It was only that there's in my mind, if faith comes and does this, we'll be okay.
0: And no one else knew except that few people in that room, Correct except for now the world will know because you <laughs> the just world
1: the world Well,
2: because of, you know... Yeah. Our six followers <laughs> yeah. will we'll know. Um, nobody knew. We didn't want to embarrass Whitney. Right. You don't do that.
1: Yeah, yeah right. Not at a professional level yeah. like that. I mean, we we can go on for hours and hours talking about everything that the Xana Company's done, all the things you've produced, but I just... Maybe we can wrap it yeah, up Yeah, we're bit. at two hours. We
0: I
2: could guess probably... now this is going to be a six-parter. Yeah, right. <laughs> <clears throat> we'll bring <laughs> you back again if you want to keep talking. No.
0: We are not afraid. Yeah, we're not. we're not. We got all the snacks you need right yeah. over there. Um, well, normally what we do towards the end of, uh, of a podcast session is we ask, well, one or two questions. And the first one uh, is just theoretical. But let's say you hadn't gotten involved with film. Even if you left the bank world and said, I'm, I'm going to do something else outside of this, given your personality, you are driven towards meaning and stories at some level. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think might have been a second or a third option? Like what might you have been doing if you hadn't have done movies?
2: Well, you know, at 24, when I married Dick, and my nature of not having any fear of the unknown... If he had said we're gonna sail around the world with the kids and then they'll have a tutor, I'd have gone. Oh, great idea! <laughs> uh, we're going to Alaska to work on the pipeline. I'd become mayor or something. But <laughs> I, I would, I was so open vote for you. to what the world had, what I knew I could do personally. In my mind, I was not going around telling people those things right. that I don't know what I would have done because I was so open.
1: So you be, you kind of met Dick at like the perfect time because.
2: For him? For... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs>
1: oh my god!
2: <laughs> no, I met him at the perfect time. Yeah, because and and he benefited from uh, how I viewed everything. Because in my mind and it, my opinion and everything at the time was, if you just work hard enough, you could make it work. I felt like that about raising stepchildren, dealing with ex-wives. If we can all have harmony, that's the thing I wanted the most. And I have had a very harmonious life. And and I just believed you do right and you do it. And I can remember many nights that I was working and I was putting the boys to bed and I was so exhausted and I was getting ready to, to go to bed myself. And I would think you cannot be more exhausted than this. And then I would say, But you're going to be tired when you go to bed, no matter what. So, does it matter how tired you are? And then I would just soldier on. I mean, and luckily I was young enough to do that.
1: Do you think you would have stayed in LA if you had not met? No. You would have, yeah, no. You're you're over the BS and the, yeah.
2: No. If I hadn't met somebody so exceptional in his own way of everything, he had no blood on his hands. In this town, everybody has fucked somebody over.
3: Yeah.
2: Nobody walks around and says Dick Zanuck did that. You know, so many things about him. The thing that initially attracted me, that this man fought for his children, was part of everything in him. It was the way he perceived things. He had a great sense of justice and what was unfair. And, you know, no. Yeah. I met an exceptional man and I had an exceptional relationship.
1: Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out and doing this for us. Because I, like I said, I've known you for years but I never really knew anything about how you got started.
2: Well, it was a pleasure. I've told you things that I have never said in public to anyone, Okay? (sighs) okay? And we're yeah, we're right.
1: gonna send you a copy so you can you can vet it. Don't worry. That's right. You That's have
2: right. all kinds of information that has never passed my lips. Oh,
1: it's juicy.
2: So That's the good stuff. Obviously, I was really comfortable, and I was I'm very happy to do this for you. Thank you so
1: much. Once this has bet. been the uh, it's the no bullshit podcast. Yeah, it's, the it's the really what it was. <laughs> <on, We>, it was <laughs> the no bullshit podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you again. Appreciate you,
0: Lily Zanic. Thank you for being here. Um, and we will um, say goodbye and sign off, everybody. And we'll see you next time. All right.